case, sit down. Um, but remain standing otherwise and turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, verses 30 to 35 is our uh, text for the sermon this morning. the word of the Lord. It contains everything that you and I need for life and godliness. Uh, It has no errors in the original languages in which it was given uh, because God is its ultimate author and we have the promise in faithful uh, translations that it remains to us the word of God. So listen carefully as I read, starting in verse 30 of chapter 26 in Matthew's gospel. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter answered and said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a cock crows, You shall deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing, too. Amen. Be seated. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of having your inspired word before us, um, easily accessible uh, when there are places in the world where um, people are killed if they have a copy of your word. Uh, We thank you that uh, we still have the freedom to read it without fear. We ask that you would uh, bless us now as we consider the this text from Matthew's Gospel, we pray that you, uh, Holy Spirit, would give us, you would illumine our minds as we uh, hear uh, this passage expounded. We pray that you, Lord Jesus, would preach uh, through the preacher and that you, Father, would be glorified as well as um, the other two persons of the Godhead. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, uh, All eyes up here, children. All right, there we go. Um, Have you ever, I'm going to use a big word here, but I'm going to explain it. Have you ever underestimated something? What it means to underestimate is you assume uh, that it would be less, whatever it is. I'll give you an example here in a minute. You you assume that something will be less uh, than it actually turns out to be. You underestimate estimate when you assume something is going to be less than it actually turns out to be. So, for example, children, uh, you might, uh, if, you're, if your mommy or daddy give you some chores, um, and uh, uh, they say, I want you to do this and this and this, and you think to yourself, well, that's only going to take me two minutes. 
and it ends up taking you 10 minutes to do your chores. You've underestimated how much time it took to, to do your chores. That's the example, uh, one example. Another would be, if you decide, and this would be a very foolish and sinful thing to do, but if you decide that you're going to disobey something your mommy or daddy have told you that you need to do, um, and you don't think the consequences of disobeying your mommy or daddy at that point will be very big, um, but it turns out that the consequences are really big. Your mommy and your daddy, or your daddy get really upset at you, and you get a a really major spanking. That would be underestimating uh, the result of disobeying your mom and dad. That's what it means to underestimate. Um, and underestimating, usually, almost most of the time, to underestimate something is not a good thing. Now, every once in a while it is. But most of the time it's a bad thing to underestimate some, uh, something. Um, and this is especially true uh, it's bad to underestimate. It's especially true when dealing with temptation to sin. We are all tempted. You children are tempted regularly to sin. Pastor Mark is tempted to sin. Everybody in this room, indeed everybody in the world, and all Christians are tempted to sin. Uh, and only Christians have the ability to resist those temptations when God is gracious to help us in doing so. But it's especially Problematic to underestimate um, temptation, specifically the consequences of, uh, of of giving in to temptation. There are grave spiritual dangers that come with giving in to temptation, and we have a tendency uh, to do that. And when we underestimate the consequences uh, and the spiritual dangers that are involved of giving in to temptation, the the results can be disastrous for us, and for people around us. Why uh, is it so dangerous to underestimate the spiritual dangers of giving in to temptation? The reason is because when you do so, when you don't see the dangers as being very, very dangerous, you are apt to let down your spiritual guard, shall we say. We'll call it the spiritual guard. But you let you have to let your guard down. Think, ah, oh, it's I haven't, I haven't had problems with that sin for a long time. I'm sure it's not, an, I'm sure it's not going to be an issue. And you kind of cavalierly proceed. Uh, and very oftentimes that is when, uh, we fall. Uh, because we have underestimated the dangers involved on this particular occasion and we let our guard down. Because we are sinners, because, uh, we are still sinners, even as Christians, we are forgiven sinners, and yes, we have a new heart, but we still have the old man within us. Because we are sinners, we have a natural tendency to, to do this foolish thing of underestimating the dangers of giving in to temptation. We also have a natural tendency to overestimate our spiritual resistance to temptation, our spiritual strength, if you will, and our ability to resist uh, temptation. We tend to uh, flatter ourselves, shall we say, left to our uh, own devices. Well, this, pa- this passage, as you undoubtedly have guessed, is about uh, somebody un- underestimating some something um, to their detriment. And it's the disciples, of course, and we're going to get into that now. 
Just remind you of the setting. We read in verse 30 what the setting is. Uh, uh, they have uh, Jesus and his disciples have just completed the celebration of the Passover meal, during which time Jesus instituted the Passover's New Testament replacement, uh, the, and that is the Lord's Supper. Uh, it is late uh, Thursday evening of uh, Thursday of uh, the last week of Jesus' life. He is within 12 hours of being nailed to the cross at this point in time. And now, uh, in verse 30 and following the, this uh, incident that we're reading about here in today's uh, passage, uh, Jesus and the 11, not the 12, but the 11, are somewhere in the vicinity of the Mount of Olives. Uh, Judas has departed some time ago. Uh, he left the upper room, you'll recall, uh, to, to betray Jesus to the religious leaders. So it's only Jesus and the 11 at this point in time, and they're on the Mount of Olives. There are two things that we're going to look at in the remainder of our time together. Two points from this passage. The first one is in verses 31 and 32, and that is we see Jesus warning the disciples of how repugnant the cross uh, or the uh, cross events uh, will be to them. He warns them of how repugnant the cross event will be to them with uh, all that is entailed in that. And secondly, in verses 29 to 31, I think I got that right. Yes. Um, The the disciples sorely underestimate themselves how repugnant the cross will be to them. But first, Jesus warning them. We're going to look at that kind of in reverse order of the chronology here of the passage. I hope you don't mind too much. Uh, We'll still get the whole passage covered. But Jesus warns the disciples of how repugnant the cross will be to them. It'll be so bad, uh, what Jesus is about to endure, and they're, um, they're uh, seeing what he's about to, or dawn, it dawning on them what, what Jesus is about to endure, it's going to be so repugnant to them, the Lord says, that they will temporarily all desert him on account of their revulsion at the thought of what Jesus and possibly they would have to endure uh, as a result of their connection with him. It appears that uh, Jesus had just reminded, although it's not recorded here, uh, it's not explicitly stated, but because of the what Jesus says, it's very likely that he had just reminded the disciples of, this, uh, of the suffering and death that he was about to endure himself. He's, remember, he's, re- he's reminded them, or spoken of this, uh, his uh, going to the cross and dying and and rising again from the dead. He's spoken uh, several times over the course of uh, his ministry, uh, a number of which are recorded and we've looked at in, in times past. And so he's reminding them yet again, almost certainly did remind them yet again, um, uh, just prior to uh, his speech that begins here in verse 31. And after the apparent reminder of what he's about to endure, he then proceeds to tell them, exactly how they're going to respond to the unfolding of these dreadful events in the coming hours. He says that you gentlemen are going to flee, in effect. You're going to fall away for a time, is what he says. That you're going to flee from my side and the horrific suffering that you are going to witness me beginning to endure, is what Jesus, in effect, is saying to them. He says you all are going to desert me. You are going to desert me in my hour of greatest need. 
I'll read the text. I just realized I hadn't read the text. And after singing a hymn, he went out uh, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. They were going to uh, uh, fall away from Jesus on account of what they what was dawning on them was about to, as, as they saw Judas approach and the kiss and the Roman guards and all that sort of stuff, which hasn't happened yet, but it's going to, they are going to realize, oh no, it's happening. What Jesus said is about to happen. And they're going to be scared. And they're going to be horrified. As they, it's like a, a, a living nightmare that they're going through, that they will, will go through, and it will be so shocking and so offensive to them, uh, and so, uh, uh, scary, uh, so terrifying, that they are going to, uh, do what Jesus says they are going to do. They're going to flee from him. And of course, what's probably going through their mind, which, uh, when, when these events happen in, in the coming, uh, uh, in the coming uh, chapters, is their thought is, I'm associated with Jesus. I have been for three years. And this is going to happen to me, more than likely. If it happens to my master, it's going to happen to me. And they realize that. Um, and they, and they, they are terrified at the prospect of what they themselves are going to have to endure because they see Jesus, the, what Jesus had predicted starting to unfold, and the events, uh, the betrayal, and so on and so forth, uh, they realize it is going to happen. And it terrifies them. The thought of having to share in the reproach and the agony uh, of what Jesus was going to go through was pretty much more than they could bear. And so it forces them, it causes them to do the things that they do. They want no part of what Jesus is about to go through themselves. They don't want him, of course, to go through it, but they certainly don't want themselves to go through it. Now, eventually, of course, the disciples would willingly embrace the sufferings of their Lord. In other words, they would suffer on account of their affiliation with him. That would happen, and they would willingly do that. But tonight was not the night when they willingly wanted to do that. Jesus' sufferings, or the sufferings that go with being a follower of Jesus, uh, are it's something that all of us who follow him, all of us who are disciples of Christ, are called upon, uh, or will be called upon at times, to uh, experience and to embrace, even. Uh, Paul speaks uh, in his letter to the Philippian church of uh, the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, and he uh, and his uh, uh, willingness and even desire to to know, he says, to know the fellowship of his sufferings. De, uh, Paul wants that. Now he doesn't want the pain, of course, associated with it, but he wants the privilege associated with um, experiencing uh, just a little bit of what his Savior uh, experienced uh, to save his soul and his body as well. He wanted uh, a little bit of Jesus' cross, you might say. And the cross is something, and all, all, uh, all the horrors that surrounded it um, for Jesus, it, it's something that you and I are naturally offended by, and turned off by, and want nothing to do with. The natural uh, instinct within us, if we can call it that, is something that is repulsed 
by the thought of suffering. We don't like it. Um, It's not something that we want to, to happen to us. Uh, the, the pain and the, uh, r- the uh, ignominy and, uh, and the loneliness and the abandonment that Jesus suffered in ways that we can't even begin to understand. We don't want that for ourselves, do we? Nobody wants that. I mean, for itself. And yet, we are told in the scriptures that it suffering... Um, Christ's sufferings, that is to say, suffering for our association with Christ and our commitment to Christ, is something that we should actually, as Christians, not only willingly embrace, but even rejoice in. Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, we read this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, Peter's readers were suffering as he was writing to them. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. In other words, it's not a strange thing. It's not out of the blue. But he then goes on and says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, and it's only to a degree and a small degree that we ever do, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Peter says, and the Holy Spirit through him, so that also at the revelation of his glory you might rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for, for the name of Christ, you are blessed, he says. You are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You see, it's something that suffering um, for the sake of our allegiance to our Lord and our Savior It's something that we should actually, not the pain itself, not the grief itself, but the privilege of, um, in some small way, imitating what our Savior went through is something that we should um, be willing and even eager in, in in a sane way, I'll put it that way, to embrace. To embrace. And it's only God's grace that will give us the ability to do that, to to rejoice, to see it as a blessing rather than a, a curse, um, uh, this, whatever suffering Christ calls us to endure for his sake. Um, it'll be God's grace that will allow us to do that to the degree that we do. Well, the disciples on this evening uh, that we are reading about here in chapters 26, they, they fall away. Even though they say they're not going to fall away, they certainly do in fulfillment of Jesus' prediction. The soldiers, when they arrested Jesus, of course, the disciples just run. They run. Peter, that same evening, would deny him three times, as we all know about, in spite of his boast to the contrary. Thomas, uh, even after Jesus had been raised, Thomas still refuses to believe Jesus has risen from the dead until he sees the very nail prints in his hands. He will not believe it. Uh, that is uh, evidence that he too had fallen away uh, spiritually from the Lord uh, and thought it was all um, it was all uh, hopeless. Well, in their Coming failure, it hadn't yet happened, but it was going to. In their coming failure to remain loyal uh, and true to Jesus, um, our Lord sees the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy 
in Zechariah 13. Let's read that. Zechariah 13, verses 1 and then verse, verse 1 and then verse 7. We read there in verse 1 of Zechariah's, Zechariah's prophecy, verse, uh, chapter 13. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. And then down to verse 7, we read, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And the passage goes on. Jesus sees what's happening or about to happen um, and what he predicts will happen as a fulfillment of that prophecy that uh, Zechariah uttered hundreds of years earlier. He himself, of course, is the uh, the shepherd uh, that the prophecy speaks of, the father speaking in that prophecy. He himself is the uh, the associate that is mentioned in that t- text I just read. And uh, the shepherd himself will be struck down. And it's interesting, the the Zechariah prophecy itself points that, that uh, well, I'll get to that in a moment. I'll get to that in a moment. Anyway, in the process of being struck down, uh, Jesus, the shepherd's sheep are going to scatter. And Jesus knows that. Jesus has, in fact, decreed that, that that would happen. And uh, the disciples... Uh, reaction that was going to happen in, in coming hours ahead to the scandal of the cross was, in fact, as I say, ordained by him and the Father and the Spirit. It was the Father himself, in fact, who would strike Jesus the shepherd. Remember that? That's important. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. That's the Father speaking about the Son incarnate. So the Father's sword is awakened against his shepherd and against the man, my associate. And then that sword, he, the Lord speaks to the sword, as it were, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. So it is the father doing the striking, you see. It's the father striking the son. And he does so, Zechariah makes this clear, for a purpose. One of the purposes is that, so that, the sheep might be scattered. Now, the sheep in the immediate context are the disciples, right? The purpose of being struck by the Father was so that the sheep might be scattered, so the disciples would leave him. And the disciples' abandonment of Jesus was something that God deemed a necessary element of the suffering that Jesus himself would experience on behalf of his people. He would be abandoned. He would be forsaken, and that was intentional, and God was accomplishing it. It was necessary, you see, for Jesus, as our substitute, to experience the loneliness, the humiliation, and the abandonment that we ourselves all deserve for eternity, but won't get because he got it. The emptiness, the sense of lack of hope, hopelessness. Remember, Jesus was a man, is a man, as a man. He felt those feelings, watching his loyal, or once loyal, friends all leave him in his hour of need. It was also necessary 
<clears throat> for the disciples to be scattered by the Father striking the Son, so that the Son might drink the cup of God's wrath alone, all alone. Since he alone, as God's appointed mediator, was the only person who could suffer in the place of and on behalf of his people. He had to be alone, you see. And that is why God removed, on this occasion, all human companionship, all support and encouragement from Jesus before sending him to the cross. So that Jesus would be forced to stand before his enemies and the wrath of God alone. So that no one would be there to defend his innocence or intervene or come to his rescue or try even. Utterly forsaken. Yes, the Father intended that it should be so, and so did the Son, and so did the Spirit, but not without, on this occasion, alluding to the victory over the cross and over the horrors and the suffering of the cross that would soon follow. And we read of that in verse 32. Jesus said, after after quoting the prophecy from Zechariah, he says, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. There is the promise right there. Death doesn't have the final say. The strike that will be uh, that is coming on me now will not have the final say. The cross will not have the final say. Jesus indicates there the resurrection uh, that we celebrate today in every Lord's Day, not just on the Sunday that people call Easter or Resurrection Day, but every Lord's Day. That resurrection was going to happen, and anybody who heard him could count on it, because he's the Lord of the universe. And that resurrection of Jesus that was going to happen three days following his death on the third day was going to be, and was, Jesus' vindication from the Father. The Father was uh, vindicating Jesus by raising him from the dead. The uh, the resurrection of Jesus showed the world, for all the world to see, that Jesus was innocent. Otherwise, he would have to remain dead. But life, the giving of life from God the Father uh, to him, was a demonstration that there was no guilt that was his own guilt that required that he be dead eternally. No, he did not deserve death, and thus he was raised from the dead by the Father. And it was exactly because Jesus had no guilt in in and of himself, although it was placed upon him uh, on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But that was not his guilt, that was your guilt and my guilt. And it was exactly because Jesus himself, in and of himself, had no guilt that he was able to take our guilt and to suffer in our place uh, and on our behalf because he had no sins of his own to pay for. The resurrection, you see, of Jesus, of which he speaks here in verse 32, is our assurance that what Jesus did in his cross work, life, death, 
and resurrection and ascension is all what uh, the Puritans referred to as the cross work of Christ. What Jesus did in his cross work was fully accepted by God on our behalf. In particular, uh, he paid off the debt to divine justice that you owed and that I owed. If you're one of his elect, I'm only speaking to you. If you're not converted, and you're never going to be converted this side of glory, uh, this side of, uh, uh, of death, Jesus didn't die for you. He only paid the price for those whom he would save, that is to say, the elect. But he paid it in full. And so the resurrection is your... Um, it's your peace of mind that all is well between you and God. And if it hadn't happened, you would have no assurance whatsoever. But it did. And Jesus is promising that it would even before it does happen here on this and several other occasions prior to this point in time. But if you're, in, if you're not trusting in Christ right now, if you're listening to me uh, remotely, or if you are even here in this room, a uh, man, woman, or child, and you have never trusted in Jesus alone as your Savior, the one who saves you from God's justice and judgment, and as your Lord and King, the one who governs and controls your life and to whom you submit, if you have not trusted him and him alone in that capacity, you are now under God's wrath. You are under God's judgment. You are uh, headed, you are careening, if I can put it that way, toward hell. And hell is waiting to swallow you up. And will do so. Forevermore you will suffer indescribable suffering unless you let, excuse me, unless you trust Christ to, to have done that for you on the cross. He is the only hope of sinners. There is nothing that you can do to save yourself. There's nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. Nothing. Only Jesus can earn God's favor for you. But you have to be united to him, and that only happens by trusting in him alone. Have you trusted in Jesus, the God of the, the Jesus of the Bible, who is 100% God and 100% man? Are, are you trusting in him alone to save you? Please do so if you've not done so. You don't want the alternative. So we have looked at the uh, Jesus warning to the disciples of how repugnant the cross would be to them in our remaining time which is brief we look are going to look now at the disciples how the disciples sorely underestimate and this is where the tie in with the children what I said to the children how the disciples sorely underestimate how repugnant the cross would be to them in verses 29 to 31 uh, excuse me in verses 33 and following rather um, and let me read verse 33. He says, uh, but Peter, this is after he said, you'll all fall away, and the prophecy that indicated as much. Uh, Peter, being Peter, uh, says what he does in verse 33. But Peter answered and said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never follow, fall away. Boldly asserting that his loyalty to Christ is superior to those others around him who are standing next to him. Peter is just amazing, isn't he? Uh, arrogant, self-assured in a 
sinful, uh, self-righteous way, he boasts that that will never happen. I won't do that. Mm -mm. These guys might, but I will not. That boast, of course, and the memory of it would only serve to highlight and heighten the completeness of his failure in the coming hours ahead when he did, in fact, deny the Lord. In addition to his arrogance that he displayed on that occasion, he also, by saying what he just said there in verse 33, he also basically said, Jesus, you just lied. You just, you just lied. Because I'm not one of those, I'm not going to fall away. You said I was, but no, I'm not going to. He's calling the Lord a liar. Denying, and, and we, we know of course what he did. Which we're going to uh, cover in subsequent uh, 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 sermons uh, on subsequent passages. He denies the Lord not just once, not twice, but three, three times on three separate occasions. Utterly. He, he fell away the worst, you might say, of all of them. And it was worse because of this boast on this occasion. And of course, all the other disciples join him in the denial as well. No, 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 we weren't, no, no, we're not going to do that. They all said, Jesus, you just lied to us. You don't know what you're talking about. I mean, it's really, when you think about it, it's really despicably evil what they did. And that's us, by the way, left to our own devices. We could have done exactly and would have done exactly the same thing on that occasion had the Lord not uh, uh, been merciful. And on this occasion, the Lord let them deny him. Uh, let, let them, rather, uh, 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 boast that they would not deny him. All of them fell into that. Peter foremost, of course. Well, Jesus, in his response, solemnly replies to Peter, as we read in verse 34, Truly, I say to you, that this very night, before the cock crows, you, Peter, you shall deny me three times. Three times. The formula, truly I say, uh, is used repeatedly by Jesus, especially on, on occasions when he's trying to stress the seriousness of what he's about to say. Uh, he's, uh, he's being emphatic, in other words. In other words, I promise you, is what Jesus is in effect saying. This is going to happen. And of course, he's being emphatic, and he emphatically did happen. It was, uh, um, he was emphatically saying, this very night, it's immediate, it's about to happen, moments from now, probably, from when he spoke, it's about to happen. So he, he was emphatic about this very night, he's emphatic about the sign that would be used. You're going to hear a rooster crow. You're not going to hear a mockingbird, although that would be appropriate. Uh, but you're going to hear a rooster crow. Not a dove, coo, you know, not a branch break. You're going to hear a rooster crow. Specifically, that's what you're going to hear. And you're going to not do it once, but you're going to deny me three times. Emphatically saying, you are wrong, Peter. Peter totally underestimates. And the other disciples do, of course, as well. But totally underestimates all of them how offensive the cross and the thought of having to carry that cross themselves along with Jesus uh, was 
to them. Totally underestimated. And this is the reason why Peter and the other disciples fell prey to the sin of disloyalty, of treachery even, and cowardice. They were, they were cowards. There's no other way to put it. They were traitors. There's no other way to put it. Did not have, and here's the important point, a realistic appraisal of themselves and what they were capable of or of their situation and what was actually about to transpire. They were foolish. Absolutely foolish. But folks, like these 11 men on this occasion, you and I need to see ourselves in, in, through the eyes of the disciples. We too tend to do what they did on this occasion, to, to underestimate the scandal of the cross, the pain of the cross, the difficulty, the loneliness, the misery. We tend to underestimate the price that we may need to pay and probably will have to pay at some point for being followers of Christ. It's the path less trodden the Christian life is. It's the narrow way. can be very unpleasant and painful and discouraging. But we must be willing to let go of ourselves and our comforts and our conveniences and our happy place. And we have to be willing to follow where Jesus leads. And that can be very that can be very difficult. You know, we are to share in the sufferings of Christ. The fellowship, Paul's words, of his sufferings. It's part of the journey. And it comes in different forms. And some of the suffering is just suffering because of the effects of the curse. We still live in a sin-cursed world. Jesus suffered because he was in a sin-cursed world and was experienced himself the effects of the curse while he was upon the earth. But of course, the sufferings, um, which are more uh, directly in view, I think, um, when Paul speaks as he does, and when Peter speaks as he does, are the sufferings associated with our commitment to Christ. The world does not like you. At least it shouldn't. If you're a Christian, that should irritate people at the very least. They don't like Jesus in you. That's they hate him. And so that that bleeds over into their their views of you. Now that doesn't mean of course people are just spewing venom all the time, but at key moments you see it come out. And you're going to. And if you don't at some point you need to ask yourself 
is Jesus in me to irritate people to begin with? We need to count the cost, realize there is a cost, and it's a big one. It's for some bigger than others. But we have to realize there's a cost. Salvation is free. Forget Justification, rather, is free. But there's a cost to discipleship, to following Christ. Do you, do you know what that cost might be for you? You know, we live in a day and age when things are changing rapidly. You know, Canada's imprisoning pastors um, just north of us. Well, quite a bit north of us, but, you know, who knows what, what it's going to look like in 10 years, or 20 years, or five. You know, there might be a cost that we just don't even realize. And are you going to be willing to pay that cost? Now, you'll only be willing if you're given the grace to do so. But you've got to think about it ahead of time, you see. You've got to anticipate and not underestimate the cost that you may be called upon to incur. For your loyalty to Christ. And you need to remember something. Vindication may not come this side of heaven for you. I had a conversation this week with somebody who said, you know, if Jesus is in charge, then why, 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 why hasn't all this stuff been done away with? Why am I still miserable? And I was like, there's no promise that for heaven on earth right now. Yes, eventually, you know, heaven and earth will be one, but that's not now. We got to go through the curse. You're stuck, and it's going to be unpleasant, and you may not be vindicated if you're persecuted. Your, your, your persecutors might look like they're getting away with it and, and in fact in this life do. Vindication will come in the day of judgment, for sure. But may not come before then, so don't, don't expect it. Now it may happen. You know, those who hate the Lord may indeed see um, uh, suffering for their, for their rebellion against him this side of heaven, but they may not. So in conclusion, a few lessons that we need to draw uh, from this passage, I think. First, you need to understand, we all do, I do as well, the extent of our own sinfulness, the capacity that we have for evil, still as Christians. The disciples were believers. They denied the Lord. They fled from the Lord. They, in his great, our greatest need, they abandoned him. That's us, left to our own devices. Don't think otherwise. I'm, 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 I'm a man of courage. Baloney. The right occasion, you won't be. You wouldn't be. We need to understand our sinfulness. We need to understand that only Christ and his enabling, that it is only Jesus and his enabling that stands between us and the grossest, most shameful forms of sin including treachery. 
We need to examine ourselves and ask for God's help to do so. To, to have a, a sound and a realistic understanding of not only of our sin, but also of our spiritual condition, of our, of our, uh, of the graces that we do have, and that we, that's legitimate. That the, but that God has given and where, and our situations, is this a situation that, that I'm, uh, uh, that I can, uh, reasonably expect to stand in or am I in danger? Do I need to just get out of here, whatever here is? We need God's grace. We need to ask Him and say, Lord, please help me to be realistic, to, to properly assess the situation that I'm facing or I'm dealing with and to properly assess myself. We need to be humble. We need to realize that we are sinful dust, dependent utterly upon God's grace to be obedient, to be faithful, and we need to seek his help for that grace in times when uh, we are being pressed. And finally, and this just is always an action point, if you will, or an application point, we need to avail ourselves of the means that God has provided, the ordinary means by which he blesses us and gives us that grace, which are the principal means of grace, are the reading and the preaching of the word and the sacraments and prayer. Now, there are others, too. Proper observance of the Lord's Day is one of them. Uh, which you'll do if you're seeking the other three, by the way. But we need to, you know, he, he hasn't promised to uh, do extraordinary or splashy stuff when he provides us with grace. You know, angels, angel choirs or, you know, uh, lightning from heaven. He hasn't provided, he hasn't promised any of that and that's not the way the Lord works these days. He uses the means that he has appointed the ordinary means to bless, to give strength, to give wisdom, to give grace when we need it. Use the means. Are you using the means faithfully? Could you be using the means more faithfully than you are? I suspect the answer is yes for just about all of us. Seek God's grace. Be prepared for what might come the price you might have to pay. Ask yourself, am I willing to pay it? And look to the Lord. Trust the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. Uh, thank you for <clears throat> the reminder of who we are as we look at the disciples and their uh, naive uh, thoughts and and boastful ways. Uh, Lord, that's us left to our own devices. Thank you for the reminder of that. We also thank you that you're in charge, Lord. Of so- you're absolutely sovereign. And you're even sovereign over our own stupidity. You can use it to bring um, good to us, uh, glory to yourself. But Lord, that's not an excuse, of course, for us to be foolish. We thank you that um, uh, you are a gracious God who gives grace to help in time of need. And we pray, Lord, that we would be wise 
servants, that we would be wise followers who have properly uh, thought through and assessed uh, ourselves, evaluated our uh, who we are and what we need from you, and, and that also we would be wise and discerning in the way we assess the circumstances around us and in which, uh, in which we find ourselves. And we ask that you would help us to be more and more faithful followers. And please forbid, Lord, that we should fall away. Um, certainly that we should fall away utterly, um, but also that we should even fall away temporarily. Please help us to, to honor you at all times. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.